Our scripture lesson this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. I'd invite you to follow along as I read. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use one of the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. Again from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, Everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we turn now to your word, pray that you would be teaching us all to live as you have called and created us to live. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under the authority of your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there is this sense in certain really great books that really the whole story is contained in just the first couple chapters. Where you read the book and you get to the end and then if you go back and you read the first few chapters You see in the characters and events and setting and what's set in place in just that beginning of the story That really the whole rest of the thing rolls out from that that everything else is sort of footnotes to that beginning And part of why we are spending a few weeks preaching from the first two chapters of Genesis is because the Bible is that sort of story in the beginning of his book on Genesis, the early 20th century theologian Arthur Pink says, he says, appropriately has Genesis been termed the seed plot of the Bible, for in it we have, in germ form, almost all of the great doctrines which are afterward fully developed in the books of scripture that follow. And so as we hear this piece of Genesis, what we're hearing is not simply a story from the past, but really this germ, this seed that is meant to be seen then growing up as a plant through the whole storyline of Scripture. And by understanding this part of Genesis 1, we actually understand something important about the whole story. And so we're going to dive into this text, and that's the question that we're going to ask. Not simply, what is this about in Genesis 1, but well, after we ask that, then also, how does this connect to the story that God is telling in our lives and in Jesus. But to start that, we need to look at this text and answer a very important question, which is, 
you have probably heard the language of this passage before about how we are created in the image of God. What does that mean? (laughs) For how much people talk about us being made in God's image, it's not actually as obvious as it maybe should be to us. And part of that is because there's one very obvious way to read this text, maybe the most obvious way, that is clearly wrong. If you read, for example, in verse 26, when God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, if you were reading that without the rest of the Bible, what's the most obvious thing you would conclude? It's that we look like God. It's that, like, you know, we have God's nose and God's, you know, facial features or something like that. But that obviously can't be what it means to be made in God's image. In fact, a little later in the Old Testament, that's explicitly spelled out. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as Moses is talking about the commandment against making images, he says, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. So he's saying that we are made in God's image, but he's saying that does not mean that when you look at a man or a woman, you somehow see physically in their like physical form what God is like, because God is without form. So given that, that it's not simply that we have God's eyes or nose, what does it mean for us to be made in God's image? There's really two main ways that Christians over the years have tried to answer that question. Some Christians, and this is probably the most popular answer, say that it has to do with our abilities. That we share God's image in the sense that God has certain abilities, and we have those abilities too. And so we're like God because we can do things like him. If you read books about it, the most common thing in those books they would say is that that's our reason, our ability to think smart stuff. That that's somehow what makes us have the image of God. Um, But sometimes you hear other ideas, too, like that maybe it's our creativity or our use of language. People will try to take some piece of some ability that we have, right, and say, well, this is what it means to bear God's image. There's at least three problems with that. One is that any idea of bearing God's image that has to do with our abilities inevitably ends up meaning that some people are more in God's image than others. In fact, I don't think it's an accident that, um, that smart theologians have tended to write books arguing that being smart, right, reason is the thing that makes us like God. Because, um, because inevitably, we end up having some people that are more like God then. And we're left with all sorts of questions about things like children or the disabled, about how could those people then bear the image of God. A second problem is that usually people end up trying to argue for those things not on the basis of what God is like, but on the basis of how we're different from animals. So usually when people try to talk about, like, language or reason or whatever as being what it means to bear the image of God, they're like, well, you know, because compared to the other animals, we're really smart. Which is sort of true, although there's a sort of reasoning and language and creativity that different animals can use. But that's not really talking about God at all. That's just talking about the rest of creation— But the big problem is that nothing in Genesis 1 or 2 lists any abilities that we have and links the image of God to them. 
I didn't put any Bible verses up on the screen there, and that's not because I'm trying to be facetious. There's just not anything in this text that would, that would make us say, oh, like the image of God means being self-aware or whatever. So that's the common view, probably, but it has some issues. The second option, the kind of second idea that people have advanced, is that instead, having the image of God rests on our having authority. That we are given a certain authority by God in Genesis, and that that's what it means to be made in his image. And that view has the advantage of coming from Genesis 1. Um, If you look in verse 26, it says, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Notice the connection there is let's make, God, let's make man in our image is then linked to mankind ruling over the rest of creation. In fact, the Hebrew in Genesis literally says let us make God, man in our image, let him rule. Again, the same idea appears in verse 28 as God gives this commandment to Adam and Eve. It says that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And the thing to notice there is that God, I mean, so really God gives two commands to human beings. First he says, be fruitful and multiply. Um, And that is a real command that we're given as humanity. That's not where we're going to dwell this morning, but... It is part of God's design for us as human beings to create families and have children and fill the earth. Now, obviously, not every individual one of us is given that calling in our life, as some of us are called to tasks that might involve singleness or other hard things like that. But that as a whole, it is good for us to have families and fill the earth. But the point to recognize this morning is that that part of this command God gives is given to all the other creatures, too. He says, be fruitful and multiply to all of the other animals that he creates. But then to humanity, he goes on and adds this second part about filling the earth and subduing it and ruling over it. And that seems to be what's distinct about humanity. So so that's the authority view, right? It says God has authority, first of all. God rules, and that what it means to be made in his image— is that he takes human beings and he sort of delegates some of that authority to us. He says, in the world, you're going to bear my image, you're going to be kind of my lieutenants in the world and have my authority. And if you can't tell, um, I think that view is more correct than the first one about our abilities. That seems to me to fit the biblical text. But even saying that, we kind of need to clarify a little bit what it means to be made in God's image. Because it's not just that we have authority in the abstract. It's also how we have authority. When this text talks about ruling and subduing, I think we can hear those words as sort of like what a dictator does, right? Like, I'm going to rule and subdue. But in this text, um, the idea is that creation ultimately belongs to God. That's what he does. He rules over the world. And so our ruling is meant to be um, in subjection to his good reign and rule. And so maybe a better way to put it than just having authority would be to say that we are God's ambassadors. Scripture sometimes uses that language to describe Christians, and I think that's a good image for what it means to have um, the image of God in creation. So if you think about it, an ambassador on the one hand um, serves as a representative of something beyond himself. 
And as that representative, he has this real authority, right? If you meet, like, Sven, the Swedish ambassador, um, you understand that when you're having a conversation with him, he sort of is representing all of Sweden in that conversation and, and to our country. Um, and so he has a real kind of power and authority in the world because of that. But you also recognize that that's not disconnected from him representing Sweden. That Sven on his own, as just a dude, is not somehow worthy of that authority. And in the same way, we are given God's image in the sense that we have his authority in the world, but we're given that in the context of being called to represent him, which is what it means to have the image of God. If I could put it a little more simply up on the screen, ultimately what it means to have God's image is that we have this purpose in the world of being his representative and showing forth his image of serving as his ambassador, and because of that purpose, we're given an authority. So then we show forth God's glory in the world by having authority and using it for good. And because of that, we do also have some different abilities. That's where that original idea does tie back in. We are gifted in certain ways as human beings in order to have that authority, which is to say just that, like, if God declared that slugs were made in his image and were to have rule and authority over all of creation, but he didn't change anything about what a slug was, like, they're not really having a lot of ability to rule over the world. So there is a sense, then, where those parts of us are reason and language, and that is, is an extension of the image of God. But what it rests in is this purpose we have to be God's representatives in authority over creation. All right. That's the big idea, and we're going to move on from that in a, in a minute, and I know that for some people that feels really abstract. So let me just try to make that concrete in terms of what that means for us when we think about ourselves. That means that we are created as human beings with purpose in the world. We are people that are created with purpose, and that purpose is to be God's representatives. When we ask, what are we made for? What are we supposed to do in the world? Ultimately, Scripture's answer is to glorify God. And this is one way of saying that. By bearing God's image, we mean that we're showing forth God's glory in the world. Um, That is our job on earth. That's what we were created to do. And so we were created with purpose. But the thing we need to realize about life from that is that that purpose is actually also very good. That that purpose God gave us, that job we have to do, is also good for us as we do it. We have a tendency to pit our humanity against our Christianity when we live in the world. To pit our humanness, our life, against sort of Christianity and God's calling on us. We have this idea that if we start to image God and live for his glory and fulfill that purpose, that that means our lives will become more shallow and miserable and unhappy. And that will turn into these kind of grim souls. But that is the opposite of what Genesis is trying to say. What Genesis is saying is that the best way to be human, the way to really be human beings, the way we were supposed to be in its fullness, is by living for God's glory and serving him. Part of why we struggle to understand that probably comes from our own too narrow understanding of Christianity Right? Imaging God includes all the normal stuff we do in our lives, like preparing food and eating it and working jobs. All of that gets tied up in that. But I think part of our problem in believing that is because in our sin, we've reached the wrong conclusion about what kind of things make us happy. 
in particular, I think that we tend to think that happiness comes from experiencing pleasure. That happiness, human fulfillment, comes from experiencing pleasure. I mean, just, just watch advertisements, right? And they're all trying to sell you some sort of pleasure. I mean, maybe it's the pleasure of, like, a hike out in nature trails that your SUV got you to, or maybe it's the pleasure of, like, you know, partying out on the beach with, you know, with your, like, Bluetooth speaker and light beer, or maybe it's the pleasure of, you know, uh, working on your big new gas grill as you watch your kids in your big backyard playing in the pool. There's different visions of pleasure, but inevitably what they're telling you is that if you want to feel fulfilled, if you want to feel, you know, really satisfied with your life— You've got to buy into this vision of pleasure and enjoy these pleasurable things. Now, pleasure is not bad, and it's a good gift of God. But what Scripture would tell us is that instead, what makes people truly happy and fulfilled in that sense is our purpose. Happiness comes from living with purpose in the world. And you maybe realize that if you keep your eyes open and pay attention to people, I mean, because sometimes in life you meet people who just seem to radiate this sort of fulfillment and happiness and peace in the world. And, and some of those people are lying, right? And if you get to know them, you realize that it's kind of a front. But some of those people, as you get to know them, you realize there's something really there. They have this kind of deep sense of joy and fulfillment in life. But those people, as you, as you, as at least as I've interacted with them, inevitably what you realize is that they feel that not because they've really, like, satisfied a lot of pleasures in their lives, but because they have a strong sense of purpose. That in their families and communities and vocation and just the ways that they live in the world, they've discovered a sense of calling. And often they're, satis- they're sacrificing some of those pleasures in order to pursue that calling. They're giving up things in order to serve other people or to care for and bless other people. But in those people's lives, you recognize that there's a sort of satisfaction and fullness that they feel that goes well beyond what you can get just from having fun. And that's what it means to be created in God's image. That the best, deepest way to be human is to live out that purpose in our lives. All right, so that's the big idea from Genesis 1. But like we said, we're in this story that the Bible tells. And as that story unfolds, You might already even be wondering about this. We're left with this question, because after Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3, where human beings rebel against God. And obviously, if you think about um, God's image in this way of fulfilling this purpose and ruling as God's ambassadors, you got to wonder, well, so are we still made in God's image? Like, what, what happens to that image of God now that sin entered the picture? And there's two parts of that answer. One is that even though we have rebelled against God, we do still, in one sense, bear the image of God. So in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, when God makes this covenant with Noah and he declares the sanctity of human life, this is how he says it. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So God's saying human life is sacred and needs to be defended even after sin in the fall because we still are made in the image of God. So we still bear it, but something's also gone wrong. And one way to think about that, Paul uses in Romans 1. He's talking about unbelief, and he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Now, in one sense, Paul's talking in that sense of images about idols, right? The graven images of idols. But in another sense, he's picturing this exchange. He's saying we were meant to glorify God, to image God, to have his image on us. And instead, now we are glorifying these images of created things. We're bearing their image instead. So are we still God's image bearers? Well, yes, but also no. And here's how to think about that. Remember, we said there's really these three things together that make up the image of God. We have this purpose, which is why we have authority. And then because we have that authority, we're given certain abilities. What happens to those things after sin? Well, we still have the abilities, right? I still have reason and opposable thumbs, whatever those abilities are in the world. And I still, in a sense, have authority, in the sense that I have power over creation. We still shape the world, right? We build cities and shape creation in this way that no other creature does. But now it's for the wrong purpose. In sin, we have stopped seeking to be God's representatives, and instead of showing forth God's image, we're trying to show forth our image, or the image of some idol. Maybe the easiest way to imagine that is to imagine that we are the crew of one of those old sailing ships, right? Like, you know, with cannons and stuff back in the 1700s. So we're like the crew of the HMS image of God, and then we mutiny, right? And the question is, well, are we still the crew of the HMS image of God, right? In one sense, the answer is yes, we, we are. We still have the ship, we're still sailing it around, and we still have the cannons we can shoot and stuff, right? But in another sense, like, we, you know, it's not Her Majesty's ship anymore. We've rebelled against, you know, the, the Navy, and, I mean, I don't know, we're, we've become like these pirates sailing the high seas. And so in one sense, we are still the crew of that ship. But in another sense, we have turned into rebels. We've turned into enemies of what we before were serving. And that, in essence, is what has happened to humanity in our sin. We should really take a minute to feel the weight of that reality. What we described there was kind of academic, but really behind it is this idea, which is what Scripture says. I mean, in Scripture it would say that everything wrong with the world is ultimately the result of human sin. Now that is true in two senses— And it's important we understand both of those senses. Some of that is true because of God's judgment on human sin. That's the hard part, I think, and the thing that we wrestle with. But, like, the fact that we die is a judgment on our sin. Because God recognizes that Adam and Eve are corrupted in a way that will cause destruction. And he declares that they will die. Um, And so there are things in our world, right? Disease and cancer and natural disasters that are part of God's judgment. And those things, while they're the result of our sin in that big picture way, are not specifically caused by some individual human's sin, right? You know, I mean, it's not the case that, like, some person who gets sick gets sick because they specifically are under God's judgment for some specific thing they did. It's not the case that, like, you know, when a hurricane hits some island, the people on that island must have been a lot worse than we are here in Illinois. It's that they live on an island and we live in Illinois, and that's why they're getting hit by the hurricane. But, um... In that, that's—we wrestle with that, right? I mean, I wrestle with that, of like, God, you know, those things seem hard, and is that really fair? Is that just, that you would be punishing our sins in those ways? But the answer to that is to consider all of the other ways that the world is wrong, 
that are a result of our sin, not in the sense of God's judgment, but are a result of our sin because of the destructive power that we have. Like poverty, right? Nobody on this planet needs to be poor. You'll hear people talk about scarcity and scarce resources and like there's not enough to go around. That is not true. I mean, right now, this year, we're creating enough food in the world to feed more than 10 billion people, right? Like, that's how much food we're going to produce. And there are 7 billion people on Earth, and almost a billion of them are malnourished or starving, right? It's not because there's not enough food. It's because in our sin, we, we don't provide and care for them. Or, or, or even things, I mean, I think locally about, like, that epidemic of opioid addiction, you know, that, that, that touches people I know here, right? That, you know, that, that wrestle with that. Like, that crisis exists because there's two groups of people— criminals and pharmaceutical corporations who were willing to make a lot of money even though it destroyed thousands and thousands of human lives, right? Like, we created that problem. Or environmental issues, right? Like, we're given dominion over creation, and when we suffer because the environment is hurt, like, that's what happens when we're given rule and authority over everything that God has made, and we don't take care of it. Or, I mean, you can go on and on, right? Like, the wars and the mass shootings that we hear about, or, um, or even just the way that, like, we abandon people to d- depression or anxiety, right? <laughs> you know, that if, you, if we just took the time to, like, reach out and connect with someone and care for them, like, we could bless them. And we don't because we're lazy. Like, in a million different ways, the world is broken because of us. God gave us the keys to the kingdom of earth. He gave us authority over it. And we have really wounded and messed up this world. And so we need to recognize that reality as we wrestle with God's justice. And we need to recognize that reality because that's what sets us up for the good news in the story of Scripture. What does God do with the fact that while we bear God's image, we've gone, we've run amok like that? Well, the answer in the Bible is that he comes to us as Jesus. Jesus actually fulfills the hope of the image of God. Here's how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians 1. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Does that sound familiar from Genesis 1? Or in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's talking about how sin blinds us. But here's what he says. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Over and over, what we get in the New Testament is this insistence that Adam's made in God's image. We somehow bear God's image. But in a special way, Jesus is the one who bears God's image. And here's the idea as it seems to develop. It is that what happened in our sin is that we exchanged the image of God for created things. And so while in some sense we bear the image of God, there's another sense in which we bear, well, the image of Adam, the image of sin. And in Jesus, what is happening is coming to restore our original design. Here's how 1 Corinthians 15 says it. He says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, meaning Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, meaning Jesus. And then that becomes how Scripture describes the work of Jesus, that what Jesus does is that he is the image of God, and as we trust in him, we begin to be recreated and restored into bearing that image of God anew. So from Ephesians 4, 
We are called to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Or in Colossians 3, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What it means to be a Christian is that that image of God in the sense of that purpose of representing God in the world and showing forth God's glory in the world, that's supposed to begin to be restored in us. One more example. Second Corinthians 3 says that we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the Im- same image from one degree of glory to another. So Jesus saves us, and in Jesus we re-meet the glory of the Lord. We are restored to relationship with God by his death and resurrection. And then what begins to happen as we behold the glory of that God is that we are restored to bearing his image again. That is the story of Scripture in terms of being made in the image of God. There's a lot more we could say about those ideas. But as we close, instead, let me just suggest three ways that that should change how we live right now. First of all, that should teach us that Christianity is not about us. Christianity is not about us, but about showing forth the glory of God. I think we have this tendency when we talk about our faith sometimes to talk exclusively in terms of its benefits to us, right? And so being, you know, we're like being a Christian man, it means that like we get we get this encouragement from it, and we feel this kind of joy and hopefulness, and we get this community and support, and, you know, we go to heaven when we die. All of that stuff is true, right? I mean, and all of that's good. <laughs> Don't hear me saying that's not the case. But imagine that you met, like, the U.S. ambassador to some other country, right? And you were like, why did you become an ambassador? And he's like, the pay is great, man. And, and like, I get this nice house that I can live in for free, and all these people act really respectful to me, and, like, if I ever get in a lot of trouble, there's diplomatic immunity. You would not think that guy was a good ambassador, right? You'd think he'd missed the point, not because those benefits aren't real, but because that is not the point of being an ambassador. Being a Christian is not primarily about the benefits it brings, but about the mission. We are called to be God's representatives in the world, to be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. We're called to live these transformed lives where we are um, loving God and worshiping him and seeking to do good in the world and bless people and care for them. And as we enter into that mission, there are benefits, and those are sweet and good. Like, again, I'm not denying that, but if you confuse the benefits with the mission, you've missed the point of Christianity, which is being restored to being people bearing God's image in the world. A second thing that this teaches us is that in Christianity, everything is on the table, meaning every part of our lives is supposed to be caught up in and involved in this mission of glorifying God. I think we tend to imagine Christianity like this, where we have our life, right? We're human beings, our humanity, and you say, like, you know what would make this better is if we added Christianity on. And so we, like, weld it on to the outside. I mean, in our world, that's how people think, you know, about Christianity, right? That it's, you add some, like, church attendance and praying and stuff on to, to normal life, and that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Um, but what happens in that approach is that, um, is that whenever Christianity starts interfering with any of the stuff in the normal humanity circle, then people start being like, 
whoa, like, wait a minute. Like, you know, I mean, I didn't sign up for this thing, right? Like, like you know, my, my, my family, my work, my, you know, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, the, you know, the, the way that I treat other people. Like, you know, that Christianity isn't, you know, supposed to intrude in there. In Scripture, though, Christianity is not like that thing you add to humanity. Instead, the biblical image is this. It says that in our sin, what we have is this old humanity. We have this image of Adam, right? And what Jesus is doing instead is coming and giving us a new humanity, and that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not adding some stuff onto the outside. It's saying the whole circle is supposed to be transformed, which means that everything is on the table. That Christianity is not limited to some certain religious parts of our lives, but we're called to seek to glorify God in the way I treat my kids, in the way that I interact with my neighbors, in the way that I spend my leisure time, in the way that I work at my job, that all of that is a part of what it means to bear the image of God. And that means that the third practical thing, and this is what I want to leave you with as a very practical thing to do this week, is that we need to constantly be testing and examining, and examining how we are doing at bearing the image of God. We need to look at our lives and ask, are we doing this? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just take some time this week, and just think about your life. Think about, like, break it up into its parts, right? You know, work and family and um, neighbors and rest. Take those things and just ask. In one of these, what's the way that I can grow in showing forth God's image. How can I grow in showing forth the glory and exalting the reputation of God in this area of my life? And I want to be careful in saying that because I do not mean that you even necessarily need to do something explicitly religious to do that. So let me just give you an example of what I mean by that. I remember I had this friend who had this souped-up car that he would constantly tinker with. And I am not, I'm not a car, like, I know how to, like, change my oil and brake pads and stuff. Like, I'm not helpless, but I, I'm not a car person like he is, right? He'd tell me about this, and I'm like, Psh. But, um, but the thing about that is that in our world, right, like, people who have that hobby, they do it in this kind of isolated way, like, in their garage, alone, or maybe they have, like, their one buddy that comes over and they do it with. But I remember him very consciously processing through this idea that, that God wanted him to use his hobby of tinkering with his car in a way that blessed the, you know, the people around him. And so what he would start to do is he would um, invite people over, and not just like, again, his buddy, but just like random people. And he'd like meet people at the, the car parts store and build relationships with them. He was this younger guy, but there were a couple of these older dudes from the neighborhood who would come hang out. And these guys would never darken the door of a church, right? But they would come and sit with him, and he'd have conversations with them about life and spiritual and he and his wife, like, built friendships with these people and would invite them in for meals. And, I mean, both in terms of God's mission of drawing people to Jesus and in terms of just God's mission of blessing, like, the neighborhood where he lived and the community that he was in, like, he had turned that hobby into this agency through which he could show forth the image of God. That is what we are called to do with the different parts of our life. To recognize that it's not even just what we're doing, but the way that we're doing it and the way we use that to bless people. That we have the opportunity in each piece of our lives to bear God's image as we live it out. And so I'm asking you to take some time this week and just ask, what is a place that I can do that? 
What is a way that I can be an image bearer of God as he's created me to be living out the sort of humanity that he's called me into? Because as we do that, we begin to be um, creatures that he's made us to be. Let's pray. God and Father, pray that you would teach us to grow in bearing your image. Pray that you would bless us as we go out into the world and help us to be transformed by the love of Jesus Christ to show forth your glory. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, that we would grow to be like him. Amen.